0: Chapter 27, verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, Rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he has said. Come and see the place where he lay. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say that his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Thank you, Carl. Well,
1: it's uh, great to see you here this morning. I just want to clarify uh, for those who are interested about the Introducing God. Uh, so the story is on May the 18th, uh, Ben and Tina are beginning an Introducing God course. So if you're interested in... Bring a friend along to that, speak to them, and then later in June, the evangelism team is running another course, uh, and the details on that will become available later and on may the thirteenth so that 's the second Tuesday of the next school term, there is a training night here on a Tuesday night, a training night so that uh, we uh, all of us uh, who are interested can learn how to run or be a part of an Introducing God course because it's the kind of thing that you can just do with your friend at home. Actually, there's a great story on the website from Dominic Steele where I think it must have been when he was here last year at TCC, he met a man who had become a Christian because his friend had sat down with him and they just watched the videos together. And through that, just watching the videos and talking about it, he'd become a Christian uh, which is just a great testimony of God's grace in using uh, us, even when we don't quite know how it is that we can be evangelists. Uh, but anyway, uh, on to the sermon this morning, but perhaps before we get to that, uh, I'll pray and ask that God will be with us. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for this uh, account from Matthew in his biography of Jesus' life, the account of his resurrection And Lord, we ask that as we look at it this morning, as we test and examine it, that you would help us to believe and to know that Jesus Christ is indeed risen from the dead and seated at your right hand in heaven. Father, we ask that for those of us who believe you would strengthen our faith and for those of us who do not believe yet, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to receive the truth of the gospel. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, on Good Friday, uh, if you were here, we celebrated the crucifixion of Jesus, Uh, and this morning on Easter Sunday, we're focusing clearly on Jesus being raised from the dead. You might like the title of my sermon, Jesus' Resurrection, creatively titled, uh, it's one of my best efforts, I think, Uh, in combination with Friday, Jesus' Death. Yeah, that's that's what you call creativity. But uh, it it, it communicates the message, I think, uh, which is important. So we want to think this morning about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, but I guess normally when we think about the resurrection, perhaps the first questions that that we ask are things like, what does Jesus' resurrection mean for me? Uh, How does it change my life? Or perhaps even, what does the resurrection of Jesus mean for the world? Uh, How does that change the reality of the world? And those are important questions. Uh, and unsurprisingly, I think, lots of the New Testament deals with the answers to those questions. But surprisingly, here in the account that Eric read for us, Matthew says almost nothing. In, in fact, he says nothing about the meaning of the resurrection. He, he talks about that uh, early on in this Gospel, and he talks about that right at the very end that we'll look at next Sunday. But in the account that Eric read for us, Matthew just talks about not the meaning of the resurrection, but the fact of the resurrection. Here in this account of Jesus' burial and resurrection, Matthew is, if you like, carefully compiling the evidence so that people would know that the resurrection has really taken place. After all, asking the question, what does the resurrection mean for me, is kind of pointless if the resurrection didn't actually happen. If Jesus was never raised from the dead, well, it's a waste of time asking the question, what does the resurrection mean? But if Jesus has been raised from the dead, as Matthew claims that he has, then that changes everything. Uh, So in what follows in this morning, what I want to do is to look at the evidence that Matthew gives us And to grapple with uh, that evidence and to test it. Uh, What I'm going to do this morning, I've been greatly helped by a little book by John Dixon called uh, The Life of Jesus. And one of the chapters in that, he deals with the evidence uh, for the resurrection. So you might like to, uh, if you're interested in looking at it further, you might like to pick up that book. But Matthew basically gives us two evidences for Jesus' resurrection... First, he gives us the empty tomb, and the second thing he gives us is the eyewitness accounts from those people who saw Jesus. So first of all, he gives us the empty tomb. There are four different accounts in each of the four Gospels, plus accounts from other ancient documents, like the letters of Paul, Uh, but we're going to focus this morning on Matthew's account, and Matthew begins by telling us how the body of Jesus got into the tomb. So in verse 57... He tells us that a disciple of Jesus took the body uh, and placed it in a tomb, cut out of rock, and then rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Carrying the body to the tomb would have been a bit of an exercise. Uh, And preparing it in a limited space of time, uh, wrapping it and embalming it and all that kind of thing, uh, that would have taken a little bit of time. So Joseph probably needed help. And we know from, uh, I think it's from Mark's notes, from John's Gospel, we know that Jesus did have help from Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a highly respected Jewish teacher of the day. So we have Joseph and Nicodemus putting the body in the tomb. Matthew also tells us in verse sixty-one that that exercise was witnessed by uh, two other people, by the two Marys—Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. I love it that she's just called the other Mary. The poor, the poor, poor Mary—is it—is that Jenny, Jenny, or Microwave Jenny? You know, but it's—it's uh, it's the other Mary. Uh, Mary, I think the mother of James and Joseph, who's mentioned a few verses earlier. Now, knowing the names to us might seem kind of insignificant, but we have to remember that this story was being told uh, in Jerusalem and around almost straight after the death uh, and the resurrection of Jesus. This story was circulating, so to know the names meant... That the story could be put to the test you could go to those four people you could go to Joseph and Nicodemus and Mary and the other Mary and say well well Mary is this true is that what happened did you see the body being put in the tomb or not and they could say yes no I saw that happen and conversely not only could it be tested it could also uh, be falsified if it wasn't true you could go to those people and they could say no that never happened we never did that So Matthew gives us these four witness testimonies, if you like, to the fact that Jesus' body was placed in the tomb. Second, we also have the guards who were placed at the entrance to the tomb. In verses 62 to 66, Matthew tells us that the chief priests and the elders went to Pilate to make sure that the tomb was guarded. Uh, They knew that Jesus said that he would rise from the dead and they wanted to make sure that the disciples couldn't steal the body And so, with Pilate's permission, the religious leaders posted guards in front of the tomb. With the guards there, clearly it wouldn't have been possible for anyone to come in and steal the body uh, without first uh, attacking them. Uh, And we know how unsuccessful that was uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, (laughs) trying to stand up to the guards. So, there were these guards posted at the tomb to protect the body of Jesus. But the tomb was also sealed. The seal wasn't to stop people from opening it. Uh, not like, you know, a safe or something like that. The seal was uh, a tam- like a tamper seal. Uh, you might think of in the days gone by when people would write letters and they'd seal the back of the letter with a wax stamp. Uh, I always wanted a, a wax stamp, you know, with an insignia ring. I was a ma- I'm a man from another time. But anyway, uh, you know, or you might think of a, a bottle of milk you know, it has the tamper seal, and if you're like me, you open the bottle and you think, oh no, I forgot to check. Was it actually, was it actually still sealed? But that, we all know what a tamper seal is, and that's exactly what the guards did with the tomb of Jesus. They sealed it so that no one could tamper with it, so that if it was tampered with, people would know. It was another attestation, if you like, that the body of Jesus was still there, it was still in the tomb. They're saying, yes, still in the tomb, here it is, we're guarding it, uh, uh, Jesus is still buried here. So we have, if you like, in the first place, the fact that the, the uh, body was placed in the tomb. We have the eyewitness statements, we have the reality of the guards and the official seal But when the two Marys return on Sunday morning, they discover the tomb empty. Uh, The first evidence that we have is, again, the witness of those two women, Mary and Mary. Uh, We know from other accounts in other Gospels that Peter also raced to the tomb and found it empty. And there are other accounts in the New Testament which claim that the uh, tomb of Jesus was empty uh, shortly after Jesus had been buried there. Uh, Secondly, as John Dixon points out, there doesn't seem to be any other way of understanding how the resurrection of Jesus could have been proclaimed in Jerusalem, except if the tomb was empty. So remember, people were saying in Jerusalem, right after Jesus had been raised from the dead, they were saying, he has been raised from the dead, and they were saying it in the very city where that had happened. Now, you could possibly imagine uh, that people would believe a myth like that if they were living in another place far away. So someone comes to town and says says, uh, would you believe someone has been raised from the dead in Jerusalem? Well, there's no way that you can check that, can you, if you're living in Greece or something like that. But if you're living in the city of Jerusalem and someone says, Jesus has been raised from the dead. His tomb is empty. You can go to the tomb and either find the tomb empty or see the body. Unless the tomb was empty... There is no way of uh, plausibly believing that the resurrection of Jesus was announced in Jerusalem uh, only uh, at that time. So only 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, there's 3,000 people in Jerusalem becoming convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. You'd think, if they didn't think that the tomb was empty, that maybe a few of the 3,000 might have just popped along and seen if there was really a body there it would have been so easy to disprove that myth, at least, that the tomb was empty. So that brings us to the counterclaim then, the alternative explanation for why the tomb was empty. And Matthew tells us about that in verses 11 to 15 of chapter 28. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Uh, is that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but that his disciples stole the body. Now, according to um, a guy by the name of Justin Martyr, who was a church father writing in the second century, so 150-ish AD, um, Justin says that people, Jews were still saying that uh, around the time that he was writing, that the myth was still going around that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body. The existence of the counter story is important and quite significant because it again suggests that the tomb was empty. There's no need to have a counter story unless the tomb was actually found to be empty shortly after Jesus had been buried there. It would be much, a much simpler counter story would of course be the, tomb is, uh, the body is there. But that's not what the story going around Jerusalem was. The story was the disciples had stolen the body. Uh, It isn't uh, what the counter-story is is significant too. So the counter-story isn't that the tomb was always empty, that Jesus' body had never been put there. That would again be a simpler counter-claim, but that's not what they claim. They claim that the body was stolen, presumably because people saw the guards standing there and presumably because people saw the tomb had been sealed. It would have been wildly implausible to say that Jesus had never been buried there. The counter-story was also not that the tomb was unguarded, presumably because people saw the guards. The point at the end of the day is, as John uh, Dixon says, what the counter-story reveals to us is that the first critics of, of the Christian movement in Jerusalem conceded that the tomb was empty. They just disputed how it got that way. So there's a Jewish scholar by the name of Giza Vermes, or Vermes, I don't quite know how to pronounce his name, actually. But he's observed that the rumour that the apostles stole the body is most improbable. This guy's not a Christian, by the way. The rumour that the apostles stole the body is is most improbable. From the psychological point of view, they would have been too depressed and shaken to be capable of such a dangerous undertaking. But above all... Since neither they nor anyone else expected a resurrection, they would have had, they would, there would have been no purpose in faking one. Since neither they nor anyone else expected a resurrection, there would have been no purpose in faking one. So to summarise in the historical evidence, generally suggests that Jesus' body was, one, placed in the tomb, two, that it had been guarded, and three, that the tomb was empty shortly after Jesus had been buried there. So the first piece of evidence, then, is the empty tomb, and it is evidence uh, which needs to be reckoned with. It doesn't clinch the case, but it's evidence that needs to be uh, considered carefully. So the second piece of evidence, then, uh, is the eyewitness accounts. We have the empty tomb, we have the eyewitness accounts, the people who saw Jesus alive. So in uh, another early document, in 1 Corinthians, a, a letter written by Paul we learn of at least six occasions uh, on which people saw Jesus alive. Uh, so there was Peter. Uh, Jesus appeared to Peter. He appeared to the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 people all at once. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. And finally he appeared to Paul. Matthew focuses on only one of those eyewitness accounts, Jesus' appearance to the uh, disciples. But then he also includes another one, and that is the first one, which is that he gives us, which is uh, Jesus appearing to the two Marys. So the two Marys, uh, Matthew tells us, on uh, the day after the Sabbath, go to the tomb and they, as they get to the tomb, they discover the tomb empty with an angel there who tells them that Jesus is risen. Then uh, after leaving the tomb, they meet Jesus in person. On the way to Galilee, and they know that it wasn't a vision or a hallucination because Matthew tells us in verse 9, they clasped Jesus' feet as they worshipped him. For one, per- for one person to experience a hallucination might be plausible. For two people to experience a hallucination uh, becomes less plausible at the same, for them to experience it at the same time. But for two people to experience a hallucination in which the person they meet is tangible is virtually unheard of. Moreover, the normal uh, conclusion that people come to when they see the, a hallucination of a, or a vision of someone who has recently died is not that the person has been raised the de- from the dead, but that the, what they're seeing is a ghost, a spirit. What was it about this encounter that made these people think that Jesus had been raised from the dead? Even in the Bible, when the disciples see Jesus walking on the water, their immediate conclusion is that it's a ghost. So why, when they meet Jesus, do they suddenly think, oh, Jesus has been raised from the dead? It's because Jesus could be touched and he could eat and sit with them. The two Marys meet Jesus uh, on the way to Galilee. Uh, It's also interesting, just by the way, it's also interesting how remarkably rational the account that Matthew gives us of the two Marys meeting Jesus. So there's an apocryphal gospel, which means it's not in the Bible, basically, uh, called the Gospel of Peter that was written about 100 years after the, uh, the book of Matthew. So a long time after all the eyewitnesses had died, Uh, a long time after there could be any counterclaims, you know, that could be um, tested uh, and written by someone under a false name. So the the Gospel of Peter was written about 150 AD. And in the Gospel of Peter's account of uh, the two Marys or the people coming to the tomb, they come to the tomb. (laughs) It's hilarious. They come to the tomb uh, and two people come out of the tomb followed by the cross like walking out of the tomb, and then they ask, someone asks the question, uh, did you preach the gospel uh, or something to those who are dead, to which the cross answers, yes. It's interesting, I think, to compare the account of the apocryphal gospel of Peter to the gospel accounts in Matthew, there's, apart from the resurrection itself, there's very little that's kind of strange or irrational or out of place. It's a very normal account, apart from the fact that someone was raised from the dead. More surprisingly, all the Gospels attribute the first resurrection appearance to the two Marys and to some other women as well. That in itself is an extraordinary fact for the first century, because in the first century the testimony of women was Horribly unreliable. Well, it was seen as horribly unreliable. So Josephus, never one to be particularly politically correct, Josephus uh, writes, But let not a single witness be credited, but three or two at the least, and those such as whose testimony is confirmed by their good lives. But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. there's There's some good advice for you beware of the testimony of women because of their levity and boldness. Another Jewish document uh, called the Mishnah uh, also says that the testimony of women should not be considered because it's not valid. So for the Gospel writers to ascribe the first appearances of Jesus to women is utterly extraordinary. It would in fact be unbelievable in the first century. And so the only reason to put it there is that it actually was the way that things happened. Second, uh, there is the eyewitness accounts of the disciples. So we've had the eyewitness accounts of the women. There is also in Matthew the eyewitness accounts of the disciples. We find that uh, a little after the section that we read in verses 16 and 17, Jesus appears to the disciples in Galilee on a mountain, and we're told quite plausibly that even as they worshipped, some of the disciples doubted that this was really Jesus standing in front of them. So verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Scepticism about the resurrection isn't a modern phenomenon. It was right there on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And scepticism about the resurrection was there amongst Jesus' closest disciples on the very day that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's not as though the progress of science in the last 150 years has suddenly made resurrection implausible and difficult to believe. Resurrection has always been implausible and difficult to believe. And we see that here, Matthew acknowledging that. Uh, In his gospel account, the idea that people once dead stay dead has always been believed by people generally uh, in the history of the world. So what was it that convinced these disciples and many other people that Jesus had really been raised from the dead? Well, Matthew tells us that it was those two pieces of evidence, the empty tomb and people meeting the tangible, physical resurrected Jesus Christ. So consider for a moment the Apostle Paul. Uh, He was a violent persecutor of the church. He thought that the idea that Jesus was the Messiah was the most offensive lie that anyone had ever been told. He killed people because of it. And he thought that the story of Jesus' resurrection was a myth. Until, that is, he met Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, uh, on the road to Damascus. That meeting changed the entire course of his life and in one moment he went from a persecutor of the church, a persecutor of the message about Christ, to a missionary uh, uh, for the gospel. Uh, John Dixon quotes another Jewish scholar, uh, another person who isn't a Christian, uh, a scholar of ancient Judaism and Christianity, and he writes this. Concerning the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday, I was for decades a Sadducee. That is, he didn't believe that the resurrection took place. I am no longer a Sadducee since, following deliber- since the following deliberation has caused me to think this through anew. When these peasants, shepherds and fishermen who betrayed and denied their master and then failed him miserably suddenly could be changed overnight into a confident mission society convinced of salvation and able to work with much more success after Easter than before Easter, then no vision or hallucination is sufficient to explain such a revolutionary transformation. If the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based only on auto-suggestion or self-deception without a fundamental faith experience, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. In a purely logical analysis, the resurrection of Jesus is the lesser of two evils for all those who seek a rational explanation of the worldwide consequences of that Easter faith. What he's saying is, these guys were hiding away, they were afraid, they were, they'd run away before the crucifixion of Jesus. What turned these, these disciples into worldwide missionaries who died for what they believed in? What changed them was these two pieces of evidence: the empty tomb, and meeting the physical resurrected Jesus Christ. Well, there's those two pieces of evidences, and there's other evidence as well that backs up Jesus' claims as Messiah, but those are the two evidences that Matthew focuses on here. So what does it mean? if Jesus was raised from the dead. If Jesus was raised from the dead, it means that everything he claimed is true. It means that he is the son of God. It means that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. It means that he is the Messiah sent from God to rescue all those who trust in him. And it means that there's eternal life, resurrected life, for those who trust in him as well. Uh, I don't know what you think of Matthew's evidence for Jesus' resurrection. I don't know if you find it convincing. But if you do, and if you'd like to know more about it, then please come and talk to me uh, afterwards. Uh, Or send me an email or something, or give me a call. I'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, You might have been thinking about this for a long time. uh, And you want to talk about it some more, then that'd be great. You might have heard this for the first time this morning uh, and want to talk about it as well. Uh, But please feel free uh, to come along and talk to me. Uh, Matthew wrote his Gospel because he believed these pieces of evidence, pieces of, e- pieces of evidence, and he believed on account of them that Jesus Christ had truly been raised from the dead. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, our faith is not a wild, irrational leap in the dark but a carefully tested, examined, reasoned and considered one. Lord, we thank you for people like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John who took the time to write what they had seen and heard, to gather the evidence and to compile it for those of us who did not live at the time but who live now many thousands of years later so that we might read and hear and believe as well. Lord, we pray that for those of us who are struggling to uh, deal with these facts, Lord, we ask that you would convince us uh, through your Holy Spirit uh, that you would help our minds to understand and to grasp these realities. And Lord, we ask that our sinful hearts would not be obstacles to the truth that our minds can grasp. And Lord, for those of us who have been Christians for many years, Lord, we pray that these truths, these evidences would bolster our faith and that they would also equip us to minister the gospel to those uh, whom we know. Father, we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.